I have a follow-up from our first episode. Chris, at your request, I have cooked multiple steaks in my dishwasher. Multiple? Yes. Multiple in one run. Okay. All right. Not multiple times. What kind of steak are we talking? I think it was a New York strip. Okay. I will admit it was actually my wife who was the one who cooked them. I was still at work just with the amount of time that it would take. But that's that's quite a leap forward considering you know she did not want anything to do with Correct. salmon. Um, so she did a lot of the work on that. Can you guess how it turned out? Not good. Not good. Not no. good. No, the, the the actual steak tasted fine. It did so little to actually cook it. Okay. That you know you would not have been able to just take a knife to it right out of the dishwasher and eat it. So we had to cook it about as long as you would have cooked a normal steak. Like okay, that I mean that tasted fine. So it didn't harm the flavor, but I cannot say that it enhanced it in any way. Okay. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. And uh, if my landlord, Mike, is listening, don't worry. This was not in your nice dishwasher. Uh, This was in our apartment right before we moved. Amy actually made sure that we got it done in the (laughs) old dishwasher as to not soil his. Uh, But speaking of Mike, I wanted to talk about my new living situation quickly. So I just moved last weekend into my friend Mike's house. And he works at Honda. And recently, he was given an opportunity to move to Japan for two years to work with Honda. And he's working on a team who is developing electric car batteries. Ah. So while he's out in the Kanto region of Japan, we are renting his house for this two-year period. And as we're moving over the weekend and we're unpacking boxes, I'm taking all these cardboard boxes down to the basement. And there's a little compartment room in the basement where we were thinking about just sticking the boxes. And I casually said to Amy that we can just put the boxes in there until 2025 and we can take them when we move out and we can put them in the back of our flying car when we leave. (laughs) Because 2025 does not sound like a year that a person would be living in in the present. So that got me wondering how flying cars are coming. And uh, I'll spare you the details. It's kind of boring. I don't think they're making as much progress as you'd hope. That's too bad. But I was in my leadership training seminar that I had to take for work today. The speaker actually did start talking about flying cars and he was talking to me about flying cars and, you know, the progress that they are making. So who knows? I mean, maybe believe the hype. I think it's still a little bit of time until, you know, we know about them. But then I was thinking about a commercial I saw recently on TV. It was a commercial by Honda. It was kind of talking about their underdog spirit over the years. And it was narrated by John Cena. Okay. And apparently John Cena is the official spokesperson for and voiceover artist for Honda. Really? So I'm watching this this video that's showing archival footage that I think was faked of of motorcycles and saying about, you know, we were known as a motorcycle company, but you know, you'll never make a a motorcycle that's street legal. And then they'll say, like, in they said you'll never be able to make a, you know, an F one car. You'll never be able to make a truck. And it's constantly showing them in, you know, people in these vehicles and proving that the the doubter is wrong. And then it gets to the end and it says, what will we come up with next? And they have a flying car going through some megalopolis city. It's all done in CGI. There's a little disclaimer at the bottom saying that this is fake, that the eVTOL in this video is, you know, was not real. And that got me thinking, Mike told me that he's working on a car battery, but he didn't say the car was bound to the land. (laughs) So in 2025, when he moves back into this house, I'm going to be very disappointed if he doesn't come back to America and fly his car into the garage. (laughs) 
Welcome to the Factoid Podcast. You didn't ask for it, but we're going to tell you about it anyway. My name is Chris Umfries. And I'm Peyton Gessel. So Peyton, your intro is perfectly in line with what I was going to talk about today, but I wanted to start out by asking you a question. I think most people, when they get their license, go through this phase. Have you ever driven really fast? Yes. Not as much as most people, but yes. Okay, because I have as well. And, and I would say really fast is a subjective term, but what I would consider really fast, I feel like 100 miles an hour and up is what I would consider really fast. Oh, no, I'm a chicken. I've You've not... never gone 100 miles an no. hour? And my parents are listening to this, and I'm pretty sure I've probably told them about this, but if not, you know, they'll hear. Uh, when I was in high school, when I first got my license... Like I said, I think most people go through this phase. Um, I would go to lunch with a lot of my friends because uh, we were allowed to go off campus for lunch. And one of my friend's houses wasn't close enough to get to during the lunch hour if you drove how you're supposed to drive. But he came every day from his house. So he knew if there was a cop, he would be right in this one location. And if he wasn't there, then we were good to go. He'd never seen one anywhere else. And so... Me and him got in the habit of going to lunch together and people would come with us sometimes and people wouldn't. We would have ramen noodles at his house most of the time. But he would drive his car. It was a 1989 Subaru uh, and it couldn't go higher than 78 miles an hour. and It would shake, right? So he's like, well, you got a car now. Why don't you drive? Yours is probably faster. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I didn't know. I'd never done it. I had a 2001 Pontiac Grand Am. Uh, and so it wasn't like a cool car, but it was, you know, whatever. And so we go to lunch and he says, there's no cop, gun it. And so we gun it, and I got up to 107 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah, 107. It was so liberating, right? It was super fun. And then I slowed down because he was like, whoa, that's so fast. And we're basically where we were going, right? We got there pretty quick. And uh, so I did that, and we did it a few times. Like most days we decided to go to his house. I would drive so we could go faster. And one time we had decided to go with multiple people. There was three people in my backseat as well as my friend whose house we were going to in the front. And I did the same thing I always do. He said, no, cop, go ahead, gun it. And I do. And as I'm going 100 miles an hour, I saw a deer, a live one, on the like standing in the ditch right next to oh, the road. No. Uh, nothing happened. There was no wreck. There's nothing bad happened. But that is the moment that I realized I cannot be doing this. Like, and so it got out of my system quick. I probably only did it 10 times, and I never did it again because I realized how stupid it was. Right? It's just not. It's just not that safe. I could have easily killed myself and all the people in the car with me that day. And so I pretty much scared myself out of ever doing it again. So I, I don't do that anymore. But uh, I think that most people go through that phase. The last time I did it, uh, I worked at Ford in Colorado. I had a job where I drove vehicles and my coworker was 75 years old. And we were driving from Colorado to South Dakota at three o'clock in the morning to go pick up a truck as soon as the dealership opened. How did you deal with the traffic? <laughs> And we were we were on a two-lane road, right? One direction each way. And he was driving and there was a semi in front of us and he wanted to get around it. And so he got in the other lane, floored it and went around it. And he went 104 miles an hour. And I was like, wow, you went fast. And uh, and he laughed and he's just like, ha, 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 that's funny. And on the way back, the same thing happened, except I was driving and there was a semi and he said, go for it. And so I punched it and I went as fast as I felt comfortable going, faster than I felt comfortable going. And I went 98 miles an hour. And he said, oh, come on. I went 104. Uh, <laughs> so that's the closest I've been since then. But that is something that uh, I think most people go through. And, and it's exhilarating. I understand why they do it because it is fun. Uh, really gets your heart pumping. Um, and so recently, not so recently, it's been a few years now, 
I discovered a community on the internet uh, of people who drive cars uh, in the specific race, okay? There's actually a movie made about this race. And when I say race, it's a loose term because it is an unsanctioned, illegal, no actual rules uh, race, right? It's called The Cannonball Run. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay, so The Cannonball Run. There's a movie from 1981 about this specific race starring Burt Reynolds. So it's a it's a movie. Uh, it, it didn't really do that well, um, but it's a fun movie. Um, but it's about The Cannonball Run. It's actually called The Cannonball Run. But what The Cannonball Run is, it, is, it began uh, in the late 70s, I believe. And it's, like I said, an unsanctioned race. The only goal is to get from the East Coast to the West Coast as quickly as possible. There are no other rules. The loose rules are that you're supposed to start at a specific place in New York and end at a specific place in Los Angeles. Those places have changed a little bit over the years. Um, but now the starting point is the Red Ball Garage on 31st Street in Manhattan. And the ending place is the Portofino Hotel in Redondo Beach, California. It's a suburb of LA and uh, in, in Manhattan. So the goal is to get from the Red Ball Garage to the Portofino Hotel as quickly as possible. There's no rules on what vehicle you can drive, on the route you have to take, on there's no rules on the speed that you can go. Whatever you can do goes. And so people have gotten very creative over the years. My mind is already spinning of ways that I could get around the fact that there aren't a lot of rules. One thing to know about me is when I was in school, uh, especially like as I got older, if there were homework assignments that the teacher would try to make it very open ended in order to like, you know, make it so that all the kids could do the assignment and have fun. And they would say like, oh, write about your favorite thing. And like, that's the only thing. That's the only requirement. I would often try to find the most absurd thing that I could technically write about and still get a good grade on it. And if I sure. wrote the paper well, no one, you know, they, they couldn't dispute it. So I feel right. like, I'm, I mean, can you change cars do you have to stay in the car you start in i i actually don't know if there's a rule i would assume so i would assume that's probably an understood rule but i don't really know there might be i think one of the rules is you can't transport the car you're in like it can't be on another vehicle or anything like that That was my next question which i don't know i don't know why i don't know how that would make it better i guess it seems like it would just make it slower well, especially when i disclose some of the details about some of these attempts that people have made. Okay, let's hear it. So like I said, there is a whole community on YouTube. Uh, uh, there's a big car community. I'm not really a car guy when it comes to mechanical things. I've always enjoyed uh, like looking at cool cars and, and cars that go fast. I think they're cool, but I don't know anything about the mechanical workings of a vehicle. Same. But there is a YouTube community uh, of, of car people, right? And I stumbled upon a YouTube channel where they just tell car stories, all kinds of car stories. And the guy who, who, who runs this YouTube channel, his name is Ed Bolian. And I had never heard of this guy before, but basically he was a car salesman and he, he at Lamborghini in Atlanta and he, he, all kinds of things. And now he's just kind of a guy who's known in the car space. And he was a big fan of this movie and a big fan of some of the big names in Cannonball. And he had followed it his whole life. And so he decided he wanted to make a run, a Cannonball run. So he took years planning it out. He figured out he wanted to drive, a, he, he ended up with a four door, like a sedan. AMG Mercedes. Um, he equipped it with all kinds of things. He actually wrote a book that I read that I really like. Um, it's called For the Record 2850. So he did it. He ended up doing his run in 28 hours and 50 minutes. Wow. Um, and so he talks about all the things that, you, that he went through, like all the counter, the police countermeasures. Like he ended up with someone built him uh, a system like they put on ambulances that'll change the stoplights. Yeah. Um, which are very illegal. And he had like 
multiple different radar systems to, to tell the radar and he had even had people spotting him who would call and they had many GPS systems and they they recorded their trip uh, you being a data guy would love like they recorded their trip in as many possible different ways that they could verify uh, and then they waited a while before they came out with it because what they did was pretty illegal right but his run which was the fastest at the time he did it in 2015 i think or 13 either 2013 or 2015 i could look it up but i i don't want to do that right now he averaged him and two other guys it was three people total they averaged okay i'm talking complete average from start to finish 98 miles an hour from one side of America to the other. That's including stops and everything. So they, they were passing that semi indefinitely. They were passing that semi forever, right? Uh, and so that means that there were many... In the book, he talks about like some of the states are notorious for cops being here and some of them are notorious for this. And and one of the main things about doing this run successfully is getting lucky enough to not get pulled over or getting lucky enough for the traffic to be good or getting lucky enough that the weather is good in every state because across America, there's varying weather all the time. Um, and the the quote unquote officially unofficial cannonball run was in November every year. And so that's a time of year where you never really know what the weather's going to be like. So he did this run, uh, and so I his is well-documented. He talks all about it. It's really interesting. Um, but over the years, as it's become a little bit more mainstream, um, there are other things that people have done. There are kind of car rallies where people will drive you know, a car worth uh, a maximum of $5,000 with, with a maximum of 110 horsepower, uh, and they'll see how, how quick they can do it, stuff like that, all these kinds of things. Or the coast-to-coast-to-coast record, right, um, which would be like, from New York to LA back to New York in the, the time of that. But uh, there was one, uh, it's actually a story on his YouTube channel. It's called VinWiki, the YouTube channel is. It's also an app. There's a story that recently was told by a guy who discovered what the cannonball was from his YouTube channel and became infatuated with it and decided, I want to break a record. And so he did a solo uh, record. He did a solo cannonball record in a Toyota Prius. Wow. And what's funny is like normally people like the original records are in these crazy cars like Ferraris and, and Bentleys and Lamborghinis and all this kind of stuff or AMG Mercedes because these are cars that can maintain high speeds uh, for long periods of time, right? And they're made to do that. Well, this guy did it uh, because he wanted to do it solo. So he knew uh, that he had to be able to just maintain a specific distance. He knew exactly what uh, the time that he needed was. He had set himself a goal of 34 hours, I think it was, because most of these runs are with multiple people. Mm -hmm. uh, and he he had also done a bunch of testing and driven a Prius. He, he had two auxiliary fuel tanks. It ended up holding like 90 some gallons of gas or 100 gallons total. And so he didn't he did not have to stop the entire way he drove the whole way through in a toyota prius and there's some really interesting stats like this guy said uh i had to keep it under 110 miles an hour for the most part because the prius really dips in miles per gallon when you get over 110 miles an hour he's like but surprisingly 100 105 miles an hour you're still getting uh 30 plus miles a gallon and it's like that's insane yeah. <laughs> first of all that's crazy um but he did this thing he talks all about the way that he uh, kept track of his run and the way that he knew how he was doing. And someone had come up with a spreadsheet, which is a pretty simple thing to make, but also relatively like monotonous and annoying, right? A spreadsheet to where he said, I want to do it in 34 hours. So that spreadsheet, it had a list of all the states and it had a list of the route he was taking through the states and how many miles it was. 
and they had like the your starting time at this state needs to be this minute marker your ending time needs to be this minute marker you need to maintain this speed um, and so he had this to follow and as soon as he went through those states he could input his time and it would update with where he was on the list so he was able to see every state he went through if he needed to speed up or if he needed to slow down uh, and so he was kind of able to pace himself that way uh, and so it's really fascinating but this whole idea got me thinking uh, and maybe Maybe I haven't grown out of the speed thing. I'm just kidding. But but it made me like want to try. I don't actually want to try it, right? Like I have, I'm scared. I'm a scaredy cat. You have a child, Chris. I have a child. I don't want to do that. But something about it is invigorating. Is it not? Yeah, sure. It sounds like so much fun. So I see how these people are are in on it and super excited about it. The, mo- the reason I don't speed these days, like I kind of drive like a grandma, uh, the reason I don't speed is mostly because I don't want to get a ticket. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so if you're doing something like this, you're definitely bound to get a ticket. But yeah, it's just, it seems like something that could be pretty enjoyable. Maybe I could create my own little version where like, you know, I can go to the Walmart and then to work and then back and then I can watch my own times and see if I can better myself. But I don't even want to do that because, you know, <laughs> speeding. So... Chris, what is your relationship with lava lamps? That's a fun question. Um, I had one. My sister had one. In fact, my sister got one before me. I thought it was really cool. So I uh, I think I begged someone, my mom or my grandma, for one, and I got one as well. I um, think they're beautiful. I still think they're cool. I know they're like, they, they sort of put you in a category if you have one, you know, <laughs> uh, but I think they're cool. Uh, I don't have one currently. Sure. But yeah, I like them. I think they're cool. Yeah. So my sister also had one when I was okay. a kid. I, I did not have one. Um, I enjoyed the lava lamp, but not enough to ask for one personally. Like, you know, if we were hanging out in her room, I would, you know, as you're you're a kid and you, you're pretty easily entertained, you're just right. staring at it. It's very fascinating to look at for a short period of time when you're bored. Um, so what if I told you that lava lamps are very important in the cybersecurity industry? <laughs> uh I'm intrigued. Yes. So there is a large company called Cloudflare, and they okay. have several different services that they offer. It's kind of confusing to explain what they do. They, To keep it simple, they do a lot of services for companies that help kind of the internet, like the backbone of the internet work. So they are allowing it to make it very easy for you to stream a video from anywhere in the U.S. and it not take forever to load. Or um, one of the things that they're most known for are their cybersecurity features, and they do a lot of uh, encryption and, you know, help keep a lot of other tech companies, you know, their data safe and secure. So Cloudflare made a blog post recently about how they use lava lamps in order to keep everyone's data safe. Uh, But for us to really grasp what's happening here, I have to explain a few different technical processes and topics. So bear with me. I'm going to do my best. We need to dig into random number generation and encryption. Okay. Uh, Random number generation, I'll refer to probably as RNG for short. That's what a lot of people in the community call it. Yeah. So when companies encrypt data, their goal is they're basically making a password that is so strong that they're not really worried about people guessing a password. They are trying to make it so difficult that a computer can't guess it. Okay. And one of the ways that you're, you know, you're 
basic encryption is more complicated than you know your password for your email login is that it involves what's called like an encryption key. And it basically takes a password and runs it through an algorithm to scramble the number and make it even more complicated. And if you don't have that key, then if you were able to come into someone's data, you would not be able to actually process it. You would not be able to see what the documents said or what they were. So you have just this useless file that you okay. can't read. So, you know, security is very important in the industry. And when, yeah, when they make this data, yeah, that they are trying to beat a computer as opposed to a human. And one thing that makes humans very unique as opposed to computers is just how many random things that humanity as a whole does. And even in nature, if you, you know, if you go outside, the amount of different things that might, you might witness or see, and you have so many people with all of their own personal routines happening that this becomes very hard to predict. And, you you know, if movies have taught us anything that, you know, you could say that randomness is part of, you know, what makes people human, one of their defining characteristics. So what is the one thing that computers can't comprehend? Lava lamps? Love. <laughs> love. Computers okay. can't comprehend love. And do you know why? No. Because oftentimes love feels very spontaneous it feels random. It doesn't make logical sense. And it happens when you least expect it. And it's just for a lot of people, it is very difficult to be able to, you know, predict love because it is such a random thing. Yeah. And with love, sometimes it just defies logic too. And at the end of the day, if you are trying to convert data into a computer, it's got to go into ones and zeros eventually. Sure. And, you know, it is very hard to take something that's not very logical and assign some sort of string of numbers to it. So I want to start off with an, just an illustration to kind of explain random number generation. So okay. we're playing Monopoly together. We have two six-sided die. And because you know there's numbers one through six on each of the die and we're rolling them, there's only so many possible combinations that I'm going to roll. And... It is just enough that, you know, Monopoly is a fairly simple game that the chances of me rolling the same number again and again and again is so rare that it feels random just when you and I are playing this. Sure. And certain rules are more common than others. I'm sure, you know, any everyone who's played Monopoly understands, you know, rolling doubles doesn't happen very often. And if you're in jail, though, like you get that random, very low chance of being able to get out of jail if you roll doubles at the right time. So let's go a little bit more complicated. Video games heavily rely on random number generation. And as usual, I kind of go back to relating everything to Pokemon. So okay. the inspiration behind the original games uh, is actually rooted in the randomness of real life and trying to capture that in a digital form. So uh, Satoshi Tajiri and Ken Sugimori are two of the main creators of the games. They were kids back in Japan in, I think, the 60s or 70s, and they lived in a small town that was rapidly uh, urbanizing. And by the time they were getting older, you know, there's a lot more industry coming in and a lot more people are moving to this town. And one of the favorite things that they did when they were kids is they would go out in the woods and try to collect bugs. So they would go in the woods and, you know, maybe the first time they go, they find almost nothing interesting. And then maybe you go again another day and maybe the weather is a little bit different that day and it brings out a different kind of bug. 
And then there's that one day that you go in and you find just like the most immaculate bug. We'll say it's a praying mantis in this analogy. And, you know, they would be able to take that big prize home with them and put it in their bug collection. So they grew up and they wanted to replicate this feel for the kids growing up in a much more urban Japan who didn't have forests that they could go into and collect bugs as much. Sure. So they tried to, you know, use the concept of random number generation. And while it may not have been complicated enough to trick a computer, they wanted to make it, you know, enough to trick a person to feeling that true, you know, randomness of life. So if we're still thinking about bug catching, if have you played the original Pokemon games? A little bit. I never, I never beat them. I never played them as a kid. But growing up, people were like, oh, you have to try those. And so I did. Sure. So very early on in the games, you go into uh, the Viridian Forest, which is one of the first kind of dungeons of the game. And as you were walking through there, you know, there are a variety of Pokemon that you may be able to encounter. But the chances of encountering different Pokemon are all different. So if you're playing red version, you have a 50% chance of encountering a Weedle, which is just like a boring old worm. But there's a 5% chance that as you're walking through this forest that you will encounter a Pikachu. And the reason they have the different encounter rates different is so that there's, in theory, a kid who's playing through this game and goes through the full forest and only runs into boring worms. But his friend might go through and he might find a Pikachu and he's going to be excited and tell his friend. And even though they're playing this exact same game, sure, both of them are going to have different experiences that truly just feel like, you know, they are very unique and different. Yeah. And I've read into how Tajiri really wanted to make the games even more unique down to like every cartridge having like different encounter tables wow. and things like this. And ultimately he couldn't find a way to make every game unique and it was just too technologically difficult right. for him. So he scaled it back a bit, but I think, you know, it really accomplished this goal of making it feel at, like unique in the same way that going out into the woods and seeing what bugs you might find would be. Now enter the lava lamps. Okay. So Cloudflare has a wall in their headquarters that has about 100 lava lamps arranged on several floating shelves. And I'll link, uh, you know, the blog post or the picture to this in the show notes, but I'm sure you can imagine giant wall in a tech headquarters, hundred lava lamps or so. There's a camera that is pointed at the wall of lava lamps and the camera at regular intervals is taking pictures of the status of the lava lamps. No way. And what it does is it uses that data to generate the encryption key that gets fed into the algorithm that leads to keeping all of the data safe. So to really just quantify how ridiculous this is, I've done the math. (laughs) Uh, So with a lava lamp, for those of you that aren't aware of how they technically work, most lava lamps are full of a paraffin wax, which is kind of similar to what you would have in, in your average candle. And you have a heating element on the base of the lamp You've got the bottle part, and then you have some sort of clear liquid that's usually mostly water, but sometimes it has a few other chemicals mixed in just to play with density and buoyancy. So when you buy the lava lamp initially, you have the wax is all at the bottom, and it takes a while for the lava lamp to really get going. So you plug it into the wall. The heating element in the bottom starts to heat up the wax, and after maybe a couple of hours, it starts to you know liquefy. And eventually, as it, you know, as it becomes a liquid, 
it becomes less dense and it starts floating to the top and it becomes less dense than the liquid. As it floats to the top, it starts to get cooler because it's farther from the heating element, which causes it to start falling Fall back, back down. down. And then it falls down until it heats up enough. And the huh. density is very important to just have it bounce just right in order to have the you know the wax moving constantly up and down. And due to it being a liquid suspended inside of a liquid, other than the shape of the of the lamp, there's nothing really keeping it together. And that is why it's always moving differently. So now imagine a hundred of them in different states of, you know, solid to liquid with the wax moving around. That is going to make a very unique wall where each of these is going to be in a different stage at all at, times. At all times. So if we assume the camera has 12 megapixels to it, which is roughly what like an average iPhone would have, then that means there are 12 million pixels in the image. So then each pixel is made up of a red channel, a green channel, and a blue channel. And assuming this is an 8-bit image, which is pretty standard for this sort of thing, that means that you have 256 possible color values for the red, 256 for the green, 256 for the blue. So if you were trying to squeeze the maximum amount of data out of this, you could take the unique red, green, and blue channels in for the algorithm. And that would give you 16.7 million different color combinations in one pixel. Okay. So if there is a potential for all 12 million pixels to have up to 16.7 million different options, you know, it's not going to be all those options, but a computer doesn't know which ones to rule out. Sure. Then you're looking at roughly 200 trillion possible ways to turn that image into a string of numbers. 200 trillion. 200 trillion. And because they're taking pictures constantly and refreshing it and using those for the keys, the lava is going to move in different spots, which means different pixels will have different brightness. Also, lava lamps glow. So not only is the lava inside changing, but the amount of glow that they're casting on the wall is changing. And that's just the beginning of the encryption process. They take that number, feed it through an algorithm, and then that spits out like the actual, you know, that that is what you need to unlock the data. That's insane. So if you were trying to, you know, determine that random number, like it, it would be, it would take a computer so long that, you know, the person who told the computer to do it would be so far dead that it doesn't matter. And that is kind of how a lot of cybersecurity works where... It's mostly based on deterrence and trying to make your system really annoying. And, you know, maybe it is still technically hackable or, you know, there may still be data breaches for these companies. But if it is just so annoying to, you know, to hack this and, you know, break this encryption that no one is going to even try it. Craziest part to me, Cloudflare is not even the first company to come up with this. People were doing this in the 90s. With lava lamps? Yes. No way. Yes. So there was a tech company called Silicon Graphics, and you can thank them for a lot of the CGI that went into 90s movies. Okay. So Jurassic Park was sure. one of the big ones where they made these computers that were very good at, you know, that had several different software programs. But like Silicon Graphics was, you know, very big in the 90s. They were, they were making a lot of money at the time. And, you know, you put a bunch of nerds in the room, 
at that time, they probably had enough lava lamps already and just needed to purchase a few more. (laughs) And they were doing this to encrypt their data. So I went on the Internet Archive and I found their website from 1996 because it's not around anymore. And they have pictures of this and they document the whole thing. Really? And they even had some interactive elements where like if you wanted to just see like what's the random number now, you could like click it and they would serve you like the, you know, here's the number that we spit out today from the lava lamps. So they were even able to in that time period have some kind of camera set up to capture variances in picture that would then turn that into a number. Yep. That would change. Mm-hmm. And I'm we're sure, even able to do that then. Yeah. And That's I'm pretty sure, mind blowing. Yeah. I'm sure the resolution of the camera was less, but even if you knocked that down a little bit, I think oh, yeah. you're, I think you're golden. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the variances are even in probably a terribly low resolution image is probably crazy. Absolutely. That's pretty insane. Thank you for listening to the Factoid Podcast. If you have a factoid and want to share it with us, email us at what's yours at factoidpodcast.com. Now that's what's yours without any apostrophes. I have not mentioned that before, but we didn't want to break our email address and make it too difficult to type. So once again, what's yours at factoidpodcast.com. We also accept corrections because no factoid is good if it's incorrect. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms or on our website, factoidpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks.